Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We are kicking off a new series called Dead Without Love, and I'm really excited about this series because if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know we've been talking about how we want to be a church We want to be people who are on the go. We want to constantly be trying to make an impact for our city or in our city for Jesus. And uh, so we kind of use that illustration of it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane. You know, it's like a little, maybe a little terrifying, a little scary at first, but, you know, we're going to jump out and we're going to do it and we're going to make an impact for, for Jesus. So we talked about how uh, we've got a gift and so we need to use that gift that uh, we need to go out and evangelize, that we're a people with a mission and we need to go and do that. But the reality is we could all go, we could make that impact, we could go in, in Jesus' name into our city, but if we're lacking one key important thing, then I don't think we're going to have the impact we want to have, and that is love. And so that's why if we were to just go without love, we are dead without love. So that's where the series title came from. And I'm excited about this because this series bridge is kind of what we were talking about and where we're also going to be going here in the next several weeks uh, after this series. Uh, Because you know that this is something really um, on our heart from the Lord to really be a church that's making an impact for Jesus in our city. And so uh, we're going to be, after this series, going into the book of Jonah. And uh, uh, what we're going to learn is that you may have the word of God, but you may not have the heart of God. And so we all have a Nineveh. And we need to go and find our Nineveh. And so I'm really excited about this series. I think this is going to bridge those two ideas really well. But also what's unique about this series is that we're also going to have multiple voices speaking into this series. And, uh, and I think that's a really good and unique thing for us to be able to do. And so next week, uh, some of you know who this guy is. Some of you don't know who he is, but we're going to have Kevin Miller come here and teach next weekend for us as well. And um, after that, we're going to have Pastor Jeremiah and we're going to have Pastor AJ come and speak as well. And so we're really excited. I'm really excited about this series. I believe God is going to speak very powerfully uh, through this series to us. And uh, so I'm really, really uh, looking forward to what God's going to show us. But we're going to go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And uh, as we get ready to start out this series, I do want uh, to let you know as well that uh, we can have a little fun as we get started. You guys want to have a little fun? You guys seem a little awake. You guys ready to have a little bit of fun? Because, you know, I want to start off today by just kind of talking about uh, a debate that a lot of us have, and it's the goat. And I'm not talking about the animal, like what goat is the best goat, you know, but I'm talking about the greatest of all time, right? Like some of you probably have this debate on social media. Some of you may have this debate in, uh, in your families, but we debate on the greatest athlete, the greatest brand, the, the greatest movies or music. And so I thought I'd tell you what I think some of the greatest things of all time are. And you can feel free. You can boo. That's okay. Um, you can uh, cheer. You can yell out what you think the greatest of all time is as well. I'm trying to get us a little interactive today, get us a little uh, into this stuff. Uh, study here. But uh, so for me, my kids, they're in basketball right now. They started in January. Uh, it's they're in, of course, here we are in February. We're going to do it all the way until March. And so you can pray for me because those bleachers are very unforgiving and um, it's rough for me. But of course, with them all being in basketball, we have the debate. Who's the greatest of all time? Now, a kid of the nineties, I believe it's Michael Jordan. I don't know how many of you, I knew we were a saved church. So 
I'm excited to see that. But of course, my kids, they are of a new generation, and so they've only seen LeBron James play. Now, how many of you LeBron James fans right now? Don't be afraid. Some of you, a few, some of you, okay, I saw a few hands, that's okay. We'll pray for you. I'll put you in my prayer list for my kids as well, that their souls would be delivered. But we have this debate. Is it Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird? Who's the greatest of all time? You know, Bugs Bunny. That's right. We also have that debate. Uh, What's the better Space Jam? Of course, the one with Michael Jordan. That LeBron one is terrible, all right? But then, of course, to me, sad news. uh, Tom Brady retired this last week. The greatest of all time. Boo, whatever you want. One day you will miss this man, all right? He is the greatest quarterback of all time, in my opinion. Tom Brady. You like Tom Brady? Now, okay, so I drive a truck. It's been a dream of mine to finally drive a truck, and I believe Ford is the greatest truck brand of all time. How many? Okay, Chevy. Let me hear. Yeah, a few of you. Uh, Ram? Okay. (laughs) I was hoping you'd be here for that one. Uh, (laughs) Uh, uh, and then, of course, we've got movies. What's your guys' favorite movie? Which favorite? Greatest of all time movie? Greatest Showman. That's good. Yeah? Okay, Star Wars. I heard that. Yeah? Now, this, this week, let me just tell you, this week, I've really been into Dumb and Dumber. And middle school Nate rented Dumb and Dumber every single week. So I think that's the greatest movie of all time. Some of you are going to leave the church now. I just feel it. But of course, we have talks about the greatest of all time when it comes to music, you know, like what's the greatest music of all time? And you're like, oh, it's worship music, you know, because we're in, we're in church. No, when you leave this parking lot, you know what you're listening to and you know what's the greatest of all time. But we like these debates. There's so much fun to have, to talk about, to give your point. I don't think anybody ever wins these debates, but we like to have them with our families and our friends. But did you know that God even spoke of the greatest of all time as well? Do you know what God said was most near and dear, the most important thing to his heart? It was love. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, what Jesus does is he makes things very simple for followers of Jesus. Now, I am a simple man, and I like simple things. And so this is what Jesus does. He's like, hey, as my follower, I'll make it really simple. Love God and love people. In fact, that's the title of today's message. Love God and love people. See, when you've experienced the love of God, when you've experienced it, when you've surrendered to it, when you understand the love that God has for us, it should do something in us. The love of God should change us so much because it's different than anything that we would ever experience in this world outside of him. It's not like our culture, the way culture defines love. There's nothing in this world like it. God sets the example for what love actually is. God's love will change us from the inside out. And this is where deep transformation happens. When you experience the perfect love of the Father, he's not going to leave you the same. He's going to transform your life. But it all starts with us knowing God. I want you to notice that I said knowing him because you can believe in him and never know him. You can believe in him and never spend any time with him. You can believe in him and never experience him. Knowing God and experiencing his love will transform your life. Now, I think when most of us, when we think about love, we go, oh, love, such a soft thing. Are we talking about love? 
It's so soft because our culture would say love is based on how you feel or whatever makes you happy. Listen, I want to let you know, love is hard work. God, real God-like love is hard work. It's challenging. It's uncomfortable for us because it's not an, not an emotion or a feeling. It's filled with intentionality. The only love that truly exists is the love that God has defined and set an example for us to follow. And as his followers, Jesus said we should be known by our love. Yet I think that's the last thing that we are known for. Because if we're being honest with ourselves today, it's not easy to love one another, right? Have you ever found that loving God is so easy than loving people? There's this vertical love, loving God, that's so much easier than this horizontal love, loving people. Because God is so perfect. He's so lovable. And we as human beings, after all, we're far from perfect and we're far from lovable. Loving God is so easy. Loving people is more challenging. But according to the Bible, you cannot separate the two. To love God means that you love the objects of God's love. But there are people who make it very difficult for us to show love. Why? Because they annoy us. There are people who frustrate us. There are people who cut you off in traffic. People who go too slow. You know, there's somebody you're waiting to order your Starbucks or your black rifle, you know, and you're in line and they go, ah, what do I feel like today? You're like, coffee, move on, you know? That's what you want. There's people in government that make it really hard to love as well, right? And those are just the small ways in which it can be hard to show love to people. What about the big ways? What about the more challenging ways? People who've abandoned us, betrayed us, hurt us, take advantage of us, slander us. Listen, it's hard to like those people, let alone love people. And yet, as Christians and as a church, we are called to be set apart from all that and be known for our love. And so here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And whether you've been in church your whole life or not, you've probably heard this passage read before. Uh, it's, a, it's a passage often read at weddings, maybe before the ceremony or as part of the wedding message. And I don't think it's bad for us to quote it or read it at weddings. I mean, I think all of us would hope that our spouse is patient and kind and, you know, long-suffering and uh, would be loving and, and not rude to us. It's kind of the ultimate fulfillment of romantic love. But 1 Corinthians 13 has nothing to do with romantic love as much as it has to do with how Christians treat people inside the church and outside these walls as well. Paul wrote this book to a, a bunch of people at church in Corinth. And uh, they had gotten their priorities off, off whack a little bit. And they began to kind of drift away from the truth that Jesus wanted them to walk in. They started to place their value in their achievements, their abilities, the gifts that they had, instead of how well they reflected Jesus. And Paul sees this in them, and he's like, hey, I need to address some things with you guys because you've gotten way off track. You know, your priorities are there. This is deadly to your mission that God has called you to. This is deadly to your lives. And so Paul is telling us in chapter 13 here that love is at the core of everything we should be doing. And so if it's at the core of everything we should be doing, I want to point out four things for us to take note of. And the first one is that without love, all you do is dead. Without love, all you do is dead. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give, all, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In these short three verses, we see about six or seven different spiritual gifts that Paul just lists off. And I think a lot of us, we would look at that, and if we saw people with these gifts, we would applaud those people. We'd say, man, that's so great that they have it. They must be walking so close to the Lord. They are like the super spiritual people. This is awesome. But what Paul is making very clear to us is it's actually love that's the most important gift. Love is the thing that has the most value. Paul's like, hey, you could be the greatest speaker. You could speak in tongues. You could speak the best sermons, talk to people in the best ways. You could be the best speaker that there ever was. You could have great faith that people look at and go, man, I wish I had faith like that. You could be the smartest person around. You could give all that you have, be the most generous person around. But if you do not have love, you are nothing and you gain nothing. It's harsh. What are you saying? I mean, those two statements basically say that without love, your life means nothing. Or in other words, what we could say is that you're dead without love. If you're not going to love your neighbor as yourself, if you can't love your enemies, regardless of the things they believe or don't believe, your life is not the life God has called you to live. Without love, all you do is dead. So are we really loving people the way that we're called to love people? As I was setting this this week, something kind of stood out to me, and it was the fact that before Paul starts talking about all these different gifts, before he starts going into what love is, what love isn't, what love will always be, through verses 4 through 7, Paul starts off by talking to us about our language, about the words that come out of our mouth. And I think he knows how powerful our words can be, our language can be. And he describes our language as a noisy gong, or a clanging symbol. See, we live in a time where everybody in our world is obsessed with sharing. Sharing our opinions, our thoughts, our views, anything and everything. Everybody has an opinion and everybody wants their opinion to be heard. But Paul starts off by saying, if your words are done without love, they're just noisy and ineffective. I think some of us will go, yeah, well, but Paul, I'm right. He's not listening. No one's listening to you anymore. Paul, I'm right. It's not about winning arguments. It's about winning hearts. Because here's the tendency. We all, myself included, we often see something we disagree with, or we don't like, or we think is false. We want to give our opinion on it. And the tendency is to say whatever we want to say, make our point, and move on regardless of who it offends. We go, well, I don't really care about that. And a lot of times we can find that our opinions, our actions, our responses lack love. In fact, I want to kind of illustrate exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's going to get a little noisy. Hopefully not too noisy, but it'll make the point here. Because a lot of times I think our language does lack love. And according to the Bible, what happens is this is what the world hears when our language lacks love. It just sounds like this. And we go, well, you know, we jump on social media and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, and we have an opinion on something, and we go, well, my opinion of Joe Biden is, and it's done without love, this is what it sounds like to the world. 
Well, my opinion on Donald Trump and the American politics right now is... Well, my opinion on marriage and gun control and religion is... My opinion on the mask mandate and the vaccines and anything else I can think of that I don't agree with. This is what it sounds like. Listen, if your words are done without love, that's all people are going to hear. It's not about winning arguments. It's about winning hearts. And honestly, if you want to know something, what really breaks my heart the most is that Christians are already so muted in our society today. Very rarely... Do you ever hear a news story about a church and they show up on the scene and they're like, man, this church is doing amazing things, impacting their city. But what do we see instead? We see people with picket signs and bullhorns yelling from the street corner saying, God hates. And you fill in the blank, whatever sin it is. Now, don't get me wrong. God hates sin. He most definitely hates sin. But the way that he dealt with sin was in love. Jesus set the example for what love looks like. You can read all throughout the pages. Jesus wasn't condoning sin. He was hanging out with sinners, but it wasn't that he was like, oh, it's okay, we'll just love. He knew a more better way, and he loved them in it, and he wanted to show them life-changing transformation through his love. In the same way, you and I, we we don't have to agree with somebody to love them. Listen, I'm not saying you have to see eye to eye politically and religiously with everybody to love somebody. I think the point, what we can summarize these three verses by saying is that whatever you do, whatever you say, if it's not done in love, not only is your life nothing, not only do you do nothing, but you sound like that symbol. And so without love, all you do is dead. Here's the second thing. Love is an action, not an emotion. See, this is very countercultural. Because we're told to honor personal feelings above almost everything else. We do what we want, when we want, uh, whenever we want, because we feel like it or we don't feel like it. And if we don't feel like it, well, we just don't do it. But look at verse 4. Look at the first five words. It says, love is patient and kind. In In those five words, this verse is showing us the unselfish nature of love. It's interesting to me that Paul, the way he chooses to describe love right off the bat is he says that it's patience. That word patience here means being patient with people rather than patient with circumstances or events. Now, this isn't the kind of patience that is just patient during slow Wi-Fi or your Netflix because you're trying to binge watch your show. It's patience with people. Are you patient with other people? With people in this church? With people in your home? With people at school? with people at work, with people you serve with, with people that you're going to be in awaken groups with. Love is patient means to choose to love another person, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in spite of what they will do to you or have done to you. It's a love that endures without seeking revenge. Are you willing to be inconvenienced, annoyed, and even hurt by others over and over and over again without getting upset or angry? See, I can think of so many people in my own life who've been incredibly patient with me. I don't have to look any further than in the front row here and see my wife and go, man, she has been incredibly patient with me. 
I come home and see three boys who've been incredibly patient with me. I can look out in this room and see a leadership team, uh, pastors, uh, staff members, ministry leaders who've been incredibly patient with me. But are you and I patient with other people in our life? Who is it in your life that is constantly taking advantage of you, who's constantly hurting you? You are called to love them again and again, not give up on them, not quit on them, but to keep loving them. What we're being called to do is to demonstrate the love that Jesus talked about when he said, turn the other cheek. See, we as a culture, we applaud vigilance as a virtue. I mean, we have movies all based off of, man, something bad was done to the hero of the movie, but they're going to come back in this montage scene and they're going to come back and have their vengeance. And we applaud and we go, yeah. So we applaud vengeance as this virtue, but we laugh at the person who forgives and turns the other cheek. Think about this, though. God has been incredibly patient with you and with me, right? We deserve God's vengeance. We deserve his judgment. I mean, after all, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yet he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us in our place for all of eternity. And when Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of the world, his last words were, Father, forgive them. He's not just talking about the people that day who, who whipped him, who put the crown of thorns on his head, who nailed him to the cross. He was talking about those people. But he's talking about us thousands of years later when we wanted nothing to do with Jesus. We rejected him, living our life of sin, doing what we wanted to do. His words were, Father, forgive them. And even after we've received Jesus and we've been walking with him, we're still fallen. We're still sinful people. We're going to make mistakes. But yet God is so patient, and in his love, he forgives us and leads us in his grace back to the truth. That's the kind of patience we're supposed to have. And I know it's hard to be patient with people. I'm not saying something I've achieved. I'm working on this in my own life. It's hard to be patient with people, especially when people are hurting you, slandering you, people who've wronged you. But God has called you and I to be patient with whoever it is in our lives. Remember, to love God means to love the objects of God's love. So let's not have our passions react to people, but our patience. So love is patient, but it's also kind. If patience is the passive side of love, kindness is the active side of love. Kindness is patience in action. This is our active response towards others. Just like patience will take anything from others, kindness will give anything to others. To be kind means to be useful, serving, gracious. It not only feels generous, it is generous. It not only desires the good of others, it works for it. Now listen, if you wait for this emotion to come, I don't think it'll ever happen. I mean, you might feel it at Christmas time. Maybe. But if you wait for this to come, it's never going to happen. And I think a lot of us go, well, you know what? I just don't feel like being kind, so it'd be hypocritical of me to be kind, so I'm just not going to do it. No, that's not how it works. Forget the emotion. Remember, love is active. It does, whether it feels like it or not. Can you imagine what kind of impact we would have in our city and in our church if we would operate this way? If more of us operate with this attitude that doesn't look out for my needs, my interests, but for the needs of others, instead of thinking, what about me? What about my needs? What's in it for me? How can I be better served? What if we came to awaken and we were like, you know what? Forget about all of that. What about that person over there? 
How can I serve others? How can I impact others? How can I uh, serve other people in this church? How can I partner with these other organizations? How can I make an impact in my city? How has God blessed me so that I can be a blessing to other people? But how do we get there? By being people who don't think in terms of what can I get, but what can I give? We need to be people who are seeking the good of others. See, it's not difficult to be kind. It doesn't take much effort, but it does take intentionality. And that's what Paul is talking about here, caring enough to be kind. So love is patient and kind. Those two words describe our passive and active responses towards others. But then he goes on to say in verse 4, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Here's our third thought, and that is we can become a barrier to the gospel. We could become a barrier to the gospel. And in fact, in these verses, four through six here, there are eight different ways that we can become a barrier. And I just want to point out a few. We don't have the time to go over all eight. But one of the ways that we can become a barrier is through envy, or what we would call jealousy. Envy wants what someone else has, or wishing they didn't have whatever it is that they have. Maybe right now you're dealing with some envy in your heart right now. Some jealousy, because on the way to church you saw a car and you're like, why can't that be me? I want a Ford truck too. I'm, jo- I'm driving a Dodge right now. I want a Ford. So maybe right now you're dealing with a little envy right now. Or maybe you went to your friend's house and you're like, why can't that be my house? Why can't I be married to that husband or that wife? Why are my kids demon babies? Their kids seem to be angels. What's going on here? Why can't that be me? We can be jealous of other people's giftings. We can, be pe- we can be envious of people's position in the church. And a lot of times we see what someone else has, and we go, man, I really want that. God, I've been praying for that over and over again. Why not me? And the problem is we can become so focused on what someone has that we forget to love other people. And what happens is we're envious, and we burn with rage on the inside, and we begin to fill up with anger and not fill up with love. Love does not envy because it's glad for what the other person has. There's no rivalry or competition in love. It rejoices with those who rejoice. You celebrate. You get excited for the other person. You encourage the other people in your life who who are going through some good things. Love does not envy because love is glad for what the other person has. Listen, you cannot love and envy at the same time. Now, without question, envy will be one of the most difficult battles you will ever face in this Christian life, because there's always someone who will have something you don't have, and there will always be someone who's better at this or that than you. But the best way to cure envy is to pray for the person that you're jealous of. See, prayer, to pray for them is to demonstrate love, because envy and love cannot exist in the same heart. Now, if envy wants what someone else has. Boasting is trying to make someone else envious of what you do have. Jealousy puts others down. Boasting builds us up. But love is not big-headed. It's big-hearted. This means that the more loving you become, the less boasting you need to do. And here's the reality. When you and I brag, we're demonstrating our insecurity and our spiritual immaturity. Paul says bragging is the opposite of love. 
So we should pursue Jesus and be humble before him and others. See, because all boasting does is get other people to notice you and to admire you. You cannot boast in love at the same time because boasting is concerned with you while love is concerned with others. So love doesn't envy, it doesn't uh, boast, and it's not rude. To be rude is to disregard others with what we say or what we do. In other words, love has manners. Are you rude with other people? Do you say shameful things or act in ways that would offend others? I think sometimes we go, well, you know what? If it offends them, they can just move on. They can unfollow me from social media. That's their problem. It's not a me problem. They can get over it. Now we need to consider what other people are experiencing. You don't know them. You don't know their life. You don't know who they are or why they are, where they are. But you can and should care about others. Remember, this is not about you. Rudeness by Christians can turn people away from Jesus. You and I can become a barrier to the gospel. If people don't see clearly the love of Jesus in you, they will not hear clearly the gospel that we preach. And here's our final thought. Love is loyal. Love is loyal. Verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Real quickly, let's go over these. This, uh, first, it says, bears all things, which means protect by covering. Love doesn't broadcast the problems of others. Love doesn't run down other people with jokes, sarcasm, or put-downs. Love does not criticize in public. Love doesn't display all of its dirty laundry for the entire world to see. Protection is a natural effect of love. Love bears all things, which is just another way of saying love defends the character of another person as much as possible within the limits of truth. But it also believes all things. Love believes the best in every person. It's not suspicious. It's not pessimistic. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't he believe the best in every person? I mean, think about one of his disciples, Peter. Peter was a guy who constantly was making mistakes putting his foot in the mouth, you know? Like he was constantly saying things or acting ways and, and doing things that were not very good. But Jesus said, hey, Peter, you are the rock. He, he also saw this woman caught in adultery and he said, hey, go and sin no more. It's the simple power of believing the best and not the worst in people. But it also hopes all things. This means that love is optimistic. Love does not dwell on the problems of the past, but looks forward with confidence and grace to the future. Love refuses to take failure as final. I read a quote this week that I feel like really sums this up really good. It says, the rope of love's hope has no end. As long as there is life, love does not lose hope. When our hope becomes weak, our love becomes weak. But then our love should endure all things. And this really sums up the entire passage that begins with patience, goes through these string of phrases, and then says, bearing, believing, hoping, and in the middle of all of this, it's enduring all things. Because then later on in verse 8, it says, love never ends. Love never gives up on anyone. Love won't stop loving even in the face of rejection. Love takes action to change an impossible situation. Love looks beyond the present to the hope of what might be in the future. Love bears what is otherwise unbearable. 
It believes what is otherwise unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise seems hopeless, and it endures when anything less than love would give up. Love never stops loving. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is this great description of love. And see, love isn't just something that we can hear about on a Sunday at church or sing about or put on the bumper stickers on the back of our car or wear T-shirts that say love. I mean, remember what Jesus said. He said, hey, the world will know that you belong to me by the love that you have for one another. This love describes a love that has to be seen. And so if the world is to know that we are Christians, then we better start showing off this love. Let's be known more for what we are about, loving people, than what we are against. See, if there's one thing I want you to learn in this series, is that love will be the thing that defines us. Not cultural love, but real God-like love. And without it, we have nothing to offer. And I want to speak to a couple of groups of people here today. Because maybe you're here today, and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, maybe a short while or a long while. And you're hearing this, and you're reading through this. Listen, we just barely scratched the surface of what's going on here. And you're reading this, and you're seeing this, and you're hearing this, and you're like, man, I have failed in a lot of ways in this area of love. Let me tell you, the Lord's been doing something in me, too, in this passage. So I'm not speaking from a place of, I've got it all figured out. I've got work to do, and some people have pointed it out to me as well. And so maybe today, you've been walking with the Lord, and you hear this, and you're like, man, i got some work to do. I would encourage you over the next week, over the next months, read this and just then present it before the Lord and say, Lord, I've really failed in a lot of different areas. I'm going to pick one of these areas and I'm going to start having you work on me in this area. Maybe for you, you sound like that crashing symbol. Maybe for you, you're not patient or kind. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, the New Living Translation um, translates uh, somewhere in verses six. Uh, it says that love keeps no records of wrongs. I think many of us, we have a little black book of all the wrong things people have done to us. And we're writing them down. We're like, I can't wait to get back at you. And so maybe for a lot of us, we just need to throw that away. Because God doesn't keep a record of our wrongs to him. And so maybe for you, you need to go through this passage. You need to say, Lord, work on me. But maybe for you, love is difficult because you've never experienced the love of the Father. I'm reminded in the New Testament, Luke chapter 7. You can read it later if you want. But in Luke chapter 7, this Pharisee named Simon, he's having this party and he invites Jesus over to this party. Jesus shows up and uh, this woman who's a notorious sinner, she sneaks into this party and she finds Jesus and she's welcoming him and she's going to anoint him with oil and she's crying and she's talking to Jesus and her tears have just uh, have gotten all over Jesus' feet and she takes her hair and she starts drying up her tears. And Simon goes, man, if Jesus only knew who this woman was, he would have nothing to do with her. And Jesus looks at Simon. He's like, hey, you want to hear a story? He's like, yeah. You can read it. It actually does say that. I think it might be a little sassy there. And Jesus tells him this parable about this man, about these two men. One has a $500 debt. One has a $50 debt. And they can't pay back their debt to the banker. And so the banker goes, well, you know what? I'm going to forgive both. And Jesus is like, who do you think is the most grateful and, the Pharisee, and Simon's like, hey, well, I guess it's the guy who had the most debt. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. He's like, this woman has showed me so much. She has, you didn't even greet me. You didn't welcome me. 
You haven't done anything to help me get refreshed after being out in the desert for a long time. You haven't offered me any water. This woman has cried water from her eyes onto my feet. She has brought anointing oil. And then he says this at the very end. He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who, uh, who is forgiven little shows only little love. One of the reasons why people have such a hard time loving is because they've never been forgiven. They've never really come to Jesus and humbled themselves, admitted that they're a sinner and that they need a savior. Because when you do that, when you see yourself for who you really are, you, what you're going to find out is that God's love and forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. When you've experienced God's love, you will look at people different. You will love people different. Because you've experienced God's transforming love. And so maybe today you're in one of those two camps. Maybe you need to work on some areas of love. Or maybe you need to come to love, come to Jesus. Because real love doesn't happen through trying. It only comes through meeting love, meeting Jesus. So maybe today where you need to start is just to meet Jesus. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.